Well, this morning, with the rest of our time, uh, we have been walking through a new series we started last week called Stories, as we are looking at some of the most popular and profound parables of Jesus. And our aim through this series is to learn the way of Jesus, the countercultural, antithetical way of Jesus through the stories of Jesus, the better way of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, the plans of Jesus for his people. And this story this morning is a strong one. It's a story on greed and God and the illusion of control. It's a story about perspective and purpose and people. You see, here's, here's the issue. The culture we live in tells us that the deep longing that we all have for more is found by looking for more, right? So the culture tells us that, you know, the more that every person in here is searching for is found in more, more money, more stuff, more space, more house. It's this deep longing for security and provision and identity that every human heart craves, right? And we get fixated on finding its fulfillment in these things if we're not careful. You see, this, this lie of just a little bit more. Like if you just spend your life, you know, looking for a little bit more. Here's what happens if we're not careful. We kind of live our life with our head down in the sand. And we are building and acquiring and accruing and developing and advancing and promoting. And if we're not careful, we live our lives with our heads so far down, we never actually peer up to see if there's a greater purpose for our life. If God's working with a different perspective in the people that he's positioned all around us for his purposes. And we live our life with our head down. And the Western culture that we live in carries with it this kind of facade, this illusion that dupes us and puts us to sleep as if my whole life is simply for me, myself, and I. And if you're not careful, I'll be honest with you, you will live your life and waste your life. And so this morning, through this story, Jesus, here's what he's going to do. He's going to give us a fresh perspective. He's going to give us a fresh perspective on his purposes and his people. So if you're with me, Luke chapter 12 is where we are. You should have it in your bulletin that you received when you walked in. Um, and we're going to read through this text, and then we're going to kind of break it down and walk through it. Sorry, if you want to read with me from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. We're going to read this together. And this is called the parable of the rich fool. And here's how the text reads. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he, Jesus said to him, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Verse 16. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. 
I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So this morning, we come in contact with our our second story from Jesus, and it's a strong one. Jesus, in Luke chapter 12, is kind of teaching his disciples and the crowds, and he's walking through different narratives and instruction. And in the middle of Jesus' teaching, a young man stands up and interrupts the teaching and says, hey, Jesus, heads up real quick. Don't mind if I bother you real quick, but I have a family issue that I need you to deal with. And in this day and age, what would happen is rabbis would often be uh, included in legal matters, family issues, theological issues. And so Jesus, being this kind of itinerant rabbi who's going around Jerusalem preaching, is interrupted by this young man. And this young man's problem is this. He doesn't feel that he's being fairly given his inheritance. In his family, most theologians would believe that he would have an older brother and he's a younger brother. And the way this would work is when your father would pass or a family member would pass, the older brother would receive two-thirds of the inheritance and a younger brother would receive one-third. And so this young man thinks, you know what? I get that this is tradition, this is normal practice for society, but I don't think it's fair. So Jesus, I'm asking you, will you step in, tell my older brother that I deserve a half of the inheritance or maybe more? Now, if this isn't audacious of enough of a request to interrupt Jesus in the middle of his teaching to come settle a family member, issue, Jesus knows the root of the matter. And here's what Jesus knows. This man does not have a legal issue. He has a heart issue. He has a greed issue. And so Jesus in this text is going to give this young man two warnings, and I'm going to give them to you. Here's his first warning to this young man. Warning number one is this. Your purpose is not in what you possess. Your purpose is not in what you possess. In verse 15, Jesus, after the man interrupts him with this family matter, responds in this way, and this is probably the primary verse in this text. He says to him, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So you tracking? The key verse that Jesus reveals here and the language that he uses is language associated with identity. What Jesus is saying is your life, what he says here, does not consist. That's, that phrase there is an identity phrase. What Jesus is saying is your identity is not built on what you possess, or in Jesus' words, your abundance of possessions. Your identity is not what you've gathered or what you've accomplished. And in fact, Jesus warns him, be on guard against putting your purpose in what you possess. Now, the word that Jesus uses here in verse 15 is not a word we throw around, right? Covetousness is not a word you'd probably use in your daily language. That word in the NIV or NLT is the word Greed. That's how it's best translated. A blue letter Bible defines this word as this, and I'll have it on the screen. Greed or covetousness is this desire, a greedy desire to have more. It's the idea of more and more for me at any cost. 
more and more for me at any cost. Whatever it takes to acquire, to gather, to accumulate at any cost. Warren Worsby, the Bible theologian, he talks about covetousness like this. He says, covetousness is an unquenchable thirst of getting more and more of something we think we need in order to be truly satisfied. So it's this unquenchable thirst for more that tells us if we acquire it, we will be satisfied. Now, if you're like me, when I was thinking about this idea, I try to put it to stories or narratives or, or persons to try to understand this. So the person I kept thinking about was one of my favorite Christmas movies, if you've guys seen A Christmas Carol. I love this movie, and I try to make it a habit that I watch this movie every year because of the incredible perspective it gives you. But the main character in A Christmas Carol, his name is Ebenezer Scrooge. And Scrooge, his story is that he lived his entire life acquiring, accruing, gathering, saving, and building. But along the way, if you remember, he's visited by three spirits, his spirit of the past, of the present, and of the future, to reveal to him that the whole time he's been living, he's had his head in the sand, and he's missed God's greater purpose and the people around him who were desperate and had really serious needs that he refused to meet. Scrooge had an unquenchable thirst for more that turned him so insular that he could no longer see purposes and people around him. That's what greed does. It takes a person who's living on track, on purpose, seeing the people and God's plans around them, and before you know it, it blinds you to where you can only see yourself. Paul talks about this idea, guys. Listen to this in 1 Timothy 6, some of the strongest language in the Bible. Paul talks about this when he says this. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Money is not the root of all evil. It's a root of all kinds of evil. It's a tool that can be corrupted. And Jesus warns us to be on guard, to take care, that we don't turn insular. Now, here's, here's what happens if you're anything like me. You read this text, 1 Timothy, you hear the stories, you hear Jesus' warning, and you think, okay, I'm tracking with you, but... I don't have a greed problem, right? I don't have a greed issue. Because here's the thing about greed, guys. It is the most elusive sin. It is the most elusive sin. There's nobody in here probably that thinks they have an issue with this because there's almost always somebody who has more than you. There's almost always somebody who's in a higher income bracket than you. There's almost always somebody with a better car or a bigger house or a nicer neighborhood or nicer clothes. And if we're careful, what we can do is compare ourselves away from considering this in our lives. But here's the thing about greed. This type of posture that turns so insular is not contingent upon how much you have. It's contingent upon how much has you. Oh, come on, somebody. I don't know if y'all heard me. I want to give it to you again. I'm going to put it on the screen here. Greed, listen, greed becomes your God when what you possess begins to possess you. That's 
when it happens. We love, listen, we love to polarize people as if poverty or prosperity is the issue. It's not the issue, posture is. It's not about your prosperity, it's not about your poverty, it's about your posture. We love to polarize people, that guy's the issue the billionaire, the millionaire, whatever it is. Listen, you can be the most greedy, houseless person in the entire city. It's not about how much you have. It's about how much has you. And before you know it, when greed takes you, it blinds you and you live with your head in the sand and no longer can you see God's purposes or people that he's placing in your life. It has nothing to do with how much you have. It has everything to do with how much has you. It has everything to do with your ability to live with your hands open wide to Jesus and his plans and his good purposes. And so what happens, guys, is when greed grips you, fear and anxiety couple it, and we become so afraid and so anxious to protect and gather and acquire that we no longer can live in freedom because we only live in fear. So Jesus gives us the first warning. Warning is this, your purpose is not in what you possess, young man. And he looks at the young man, and then he goes into his second warning. And to tell the man a warning of what his life could become, because maybe it's not there yet. For all of us, we are all the young man approaching Jesus. And so Jesus is going to say, before you get there, let me tell you how this plays out. I'm going to tell you a story. And here's the story Jesus reads to him, verse 16. And he told him a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produce plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I mean, that's a good problem to have, isn't it, Zeke? Come on, somebody. What am I going to (laughs) do? I am rich. I'm filthy rich. And so here's what he says to himself. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. There I will store all my grain and all my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Sheesh. So Jesus, after warning this young man, your purpose is not in what you possess. It's not about your abundance of possessions. He goes into a story about another young man who became possessed by greed and how this played out in his life. And here's what happens in the narrative. This young man has a piece of property that produces an abundant crop. Now, here's what's cool. In this text, this crop was not produced because of his work ethic. This was not produced because he knew what he was doing agriculturally. He just happened to be very favored and blessed. And one day, it's like as if you put an investment in the S&P 500, and you open your computer next week, and all of a sudden, your investment skyrocketed. Every one of us would be like, I am happy. This is good. Honey, come look at this. Look at the NASDAQ. Do you see that? Everyone else has lost money. Me, I'm rich. We're rich, honey. So that's what happened here. The land of a young man produced plentifully. And so here's what happens. Every one of us, if this was us, we'd be like, praise the Lord Jesus. In my discipleship group, one of the young guys in my group, he was like, I don't understand what's the problem with this. This is good. And and to to a certain extent, yes, he's right, absolutely. What is the problem with this? In fact, there is no problem. But here's what happens, guys. If we're in his position... 
if God so happens to favor us in this way, which, praise God, if he does, if he happens to favor us, what would we, what would we do? We have all sorts of ideas of what we would do. We all have our notions of, yeah, I want to, you know, I really just want to be a guy who makes more money because I want to bless other people. And I'm like, that's cool, man. What are you doing now? <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, one day when I get there, you ain't getting there, homie. So this young man, what does he do? Well, here's what happens. Here's what the story tells us. The young man sits back and thinks to himself, what am I going to do? I'm not going to, like, add an addition to my house. I'm going to tear my house down. I'm going to build a whole new house. I'm going to build bigger barns. And then I'm going to store all my crops and all my grain. And then I'm going to retire early. I'm going to sit back and I'm going to say, soul, I'm talking to myself now, by the way. This is what the young man is doing in the story. Soul, he doesn't have any friends. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. And you notice what he says next? Relax. You don't need to rely. Who do you need to rely on? You don't need God. Relax. Eat, drink, be merry. Now, here's the thing. In this text, there's actually nothing wrong with some of these ideas. There's nothing wrong with being blessed immensely by God. There's so many characters throughout Scripture and that we know that love the Lord Jesus and are abundantly blessed financially. But here's where you start to see the issue. Did you notice anything in the text when it comes to the language used? In this story, when the young man is being told about, there are 11 personal pronouns used. 11 personal pronouns. Let me read it for you. He thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. I will store all my grain, my goods. I will say to my soul, are you starting to track with me? The young man has become so completely blinded to anything beyond himself. He has his head in the sand. He cannot see God's greater purposes or any other people. Here's the second warning that Jesus would give us this morning. The second warning is this. You are blessed to be a blessing. You are blessed to be a blessing. When we are abundantly blessed, for whatever degree that is, I think every one of us could look at ourselves right now and say, to a certain degree, we are abundantly blessed. We are abundantly blessed. When we are blessed, we often think we are blessed simply to be blessed. And yes, in one sense, God is that good. God is that kind. God is that merciful. He is that gracious. Every perfect gift comes from the Father of heavenly lights. He is that good. But you would be just as biblical to say you are blessed because it's a test. Because God blesses you to be a blessing. That's what he does. Listen to how Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. He's talking to a church that needs to help support another church that's floundering financially, people who are struggling, people who can barely meet their needs. And as he speaks to this church, here's what he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Are you tracking with me? That's not prosperity gospel. That's straight gospel. That's just straight text. You sow sparingly, guess what? The ground, it reaps sparingly. You sow bountifully, you get bountifully. That's what Paul says. And then he goes, keeps going. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
God doesn't want you in here like begrudgingly giving to his purposes and his people. It should bring us joy. That's what he wants for us, joy to be generous. Jesus says it's better to give than to receive. You get more joy giving than taking. He continues, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And here's the key verse, verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You track with that? You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which will then produce people who are thankful to God, both the giver and the receiver. Paul says you are enriched means you're blessed to be a blessing. If we're just using alliteration, Paul could have went, that probably the NLT says that. You are blessed to be a blessing. You are enriched to be generous. So the temptation, guys, for all of us is to take what God has given to us and build our small kingdoms of me, myself, and I. But what did Jesus and Paul teach us? They teach us that we are here on this earth for God's purposes and God's people. And whether you have a little or you have a lot, nobody is excused. Whether you have a little or a lot, nobody is excused. Jesus looks at the poor widow who gives just two shekels, two mites, and he says she's given more than anybody else. A little or a lot, nobody's excused. And here, here's, here's what's crucial, guys. You see, this guy in the text, in the parable, he was not a theological atheist, but he was a practical atheist. He believed in God theologically, but his life did not show it. He was a practical atheist. And let me, tra- let me just be honest with you. Most of us, if we're honest in the church, we're living our lives as practical atheists. There's nothing different about our life than anyone else who doesn't trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. There's nothing different about how we use our resources. There's nothing different about how we see people and help people. There's nothing different about how we share with them and love them, invite them in, care for them, speak to them. We're living as practical atheists. And this man, no matter what he believed theologically, showed what he truly believed practically. And so you notice in this text what gripped me as I was thinking about this and chewing on this and convicted about this is you notice how little control we have over our lives. You see, what was so devastating in this parable is that in totals that this man spent every waking moment of his life and his energy building his own estate only to lose his life in a second. All of his energy, all of his focus all of his assets, all of his attention, building up and acquiring and producing, accumulating, only for Jesus to utter some of the most sobering words in Scripture when he says, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Meaning, somebody else's. So, you know, I was thinking about this text, and I'll share a quick story with you guys. It's somewhat inflated, and um, I pray it's, it makes sense. I don't actually know if it actually makes sense in my head yet. But um, a couple weeks ago, I told this story to our huddle last week, but um, a couple weeks ago, my daughter got sick with a stomach bug from childcare, and she threw up on me, and then I got sick. And 
I've been chewing on a couple of stories from the Old Testament. The story of this king named Nebuchadnezzar, who had all this power and all this authority and all these resources, but he was blinded to God's greater purposes and people. And he didn't leverage the authority God had given him. And in his pride, he looked out over his people. And in his arrogance, God had to humble him. He had no fear of the Lord that allowed him to truly see what his life was positioned for. And in the same narrative, studying the story of Pharaoh, who once again has all this power, all these resources, all this abundance of people, but he has no fear of the Lord, no humility to humble himself and see God's greater purposes in his people. And as I'm chewing on these stories, I go down with the stomach bug. And if you guys have had this, it's awful. I mean, things are coming out both ends. And I'm just going to be real with you guys, okay? Like, are we, are we cool with being real here? It was tough. It was tough, okay? I went from, like, eating dinner with my family to being like a toddler in a bed that had zero control over his bodily functions, and I'm confessing to my wife, I'm, I'm like laid up in this bed just repenting of every sin I can think of. Like, Lord, take this away from me. I can't take a sip of water. I, I can't take one sip of water. So I'm dehydrating. I'm like, I'm for sure going to die. I'm going to die right here in this bed because I can't plug both ends and I can't drink water. It's over for me. And here's the thing. When you're in that place, you really start thinking about your life, don't you? Let's be real. If you get this, I swear on my life, you will be calling me, recommitting your life to Christ. Because it, it's that kind of sobriety. And as I was laying there thinking about this, I couldn't help thinking about these stories, Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh and all these people and the resources God has abundantly blessed me and my wife with. I'll be honest with you. My wife and I are in a place financially we've never been in before. I'll just be honest. For years, I was some broke dude living with tons of different dudes in different rooms. I've had 43 different roommates. I, I mean, I've, I've had, I've been blessed, right? But I'm not gonna say like I was like living it up. I never lived by myself. And now in the position that we are in, we are positioned to help a lot more people. I'll just be straight with you. And as I'm sitting there and thinking about this, I'm thinking about all the people God had been putting on my heart to help that I hadn't come, that I hadn't fulfilled. All the people God had been putting around me that have real serious needs that I just have not fulfilled those. And so I was just repenting to the Lord. I'm sorry, Lord. When he wakes you up with that kind of perspective that your life is really not in your hands, how little control you actually have, and you start to realize, I better maximize my life for Jesus. I better do something with the things he's given me. And we live with this illusion of control and with our head in the sand and just moving forward, but we have no idea where we're going. And we don't see God's greater purposes and we don't see the people he's putting in our path. But when he gives you that kind of sobriety, you start to see clearly again. And for this young man, for myself, for so many of us, it's so easy to turn insular. It's so easy to just slowly drift, to become so self-absorbed that we fail to trust God with what we have before we know it, what we have as us. So I repent and ask Jesus to just keep softening my heart and keep opening my hands. And Jesus tells you, every one of you has that same drift, that same drift to close your hands. And he says, guard against that. He wouldn't say it for no reason. So how do you do that? This morning as we close, I want to give you a couple things according to the text. 
and I'm running a little long here, but Jesus says the same will be true for anybody else who's rich towards himself and not towards God. The same life, the same ending, the same waste. So what do we do? I'm gonna give you two quick applications. Here's the first one. We must replace our hearts treasuring greed by treasuring God. We must replace our hearts treasuring greed by treasuring God. Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What does it mean to be rich toward God? Ultimately, guys, as all things in Scripture in these parables, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. God is not after your money. He's after your heart. But what happens is we make idols in our hearts. Our hearts, as one theologian said, are idol-making factories. We take good things God has given us, tools God has given us, and we elevate them to supreme things. Good things become God things, where our resources and money begin to take all of our worship. And we wouldn't say it, but if it takes our attention and our focus and our time and all of our energy, that's your worship. So we make Good things, God things. Well, how do you replace that false God of greed with God? Here's the thing with an idol. You can't remove an idol. Many people in this room, you're hearing me talk and you're thinking, okay, all right, honey, we're gonna make a hard pivot tonight. We're going on push pay. We're gonna be given. And that's fine. That could be a good thing, but that won't solve the issue. You cannot remove an idol. You must replace it. There will never be a time in your heart where your soul cannot be filled with something. It has to be filled. If you remove all your money, like I said, poverty's not the answer. You can sell all your goods and be just as greedy. The key is your heart. You have to replace the idol of greed with treasuring God. Here's a parable Jesus gives in the Gospel of Matthew where he talks about what this experience is like. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So here's what Jesus is saying. When you meet Jesus, the kingdom, when you experience the kingdom of heaven, what it's truly like, you cover it up, you go home, you're willing to sell everything you have to come have this. Because you don't, it doesn't matter anymore what you had. It only matters what you found. So that's what it's like when you meet Jesus. He is the supreme treasure that all lesser treasures have no more power over. You are willing to let go of whatever it is in your past because you want him. It will never be enough to try to remove greed. You can only replace it, and you can only replace it by treasuring Jesus of so much worth that lesser grips like idols of greed have no more power over you. Are you tracking with me? We have to replace treasuring greed with treasuring Jesus. Until Jesus becomes our treasure, everything else will be. You will treasure greed until treasuring Christ becomes your treasure. You will treasure anything else, everything else. Replace greed with anything. Name the list and that's what you'll do. Until Jesus is the treasure of your heart. That's what the gospel is about. It's about being so satisfied in Jesus that no matter what you have, abundance or poverty, like Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can be content in all things. We have to treasure Jesus. That's the only way to loosen our grip and to start holding our things the way God intended it. But here's the second thing. Here's the key application that I'll close with. We must guard our hearts by guiding our hearts. 
employing our resources for his purposes. Jesus warns you about greed, and he says, guard against it, because he knows its grip on our life. He knows our temptation and our trajectory to turn insular and to put our head down and to forget the greater purpose that he's created us for, to miss the people around us. He knows our drift. And so how do you guard your heart? Guess what? The way you guard your heart is you guide your heart. You guard your heart by guiding your heart. You see, in this text of Luke 12, right after Jesus tells the parable of the rich fool, he goes into a teaching on anxiety and money and possessions. And he says this, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. The birds, I provide for them. The lilies of the field, I provide for them. And he rolls out this beautiful teaching reminding his followers that we can trust him with our every need. God knows the world we live in. He knows inflation. Just a heads up. Jesus knows it. 8%, 9%, 10%. Jesus knows it. And he still tells us, I've got you, man. And here's what he says as he closes that chapter. This powerful verse, verse 34, Luke 12. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, and he's talking about literal money there, guys. He's not talking about something else. He's literally talking about your money. Where your treasure is or your resources are, your heart will be also. Listen, for the young man in the parable who had stored everything in his bigger barn out back, his heart was also in that barn. That's where it was. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So here's what Jesus is saying. You want to guard your heart, you better guide it. If you want your heart to treasure Christ, guide your treasures in the direction you want your heart to go. Come on, that's good. That's good, Zeke. You take your treasure, your resources, and you guide it exactly where you want your heart to go. And if you want your heart to become completely insular, you build a bigger barn in the back and you store everything back there. And guess what? It's accomplished. But if you want your heart to treasure Jesus above all, you send your resources for his purposes and his people, and your heart follows. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what does that look like, guys, to do that? It doesn't mean for all of us to go home and sell all of our possessions. It means to live with our eyes wide open and our hands wide open. And here's two ways you can do that. I know talking about this at church is not popular. We haven't talked about money, guys, in pretty much two and a half years because we know most of you come in here and you're limping in here because every church has just beat you over the head about money. But guess what? Jesus talks about money more than heaven or hell. So at some point, we've got to teach about this. At some point, we've got to form ourselves under the hand of Jesus on this. And so here's two things you can do today. I'll call it like this. When it comes to guiding your resources for God's purposes, two ways you can set this up that we do it in our household. Static giving, spontaneous giving. Static giving, spontaneous. What does that mean? Static means it's a constant, continual gift that's guaranteed. Like, refer to that as like tithing in the Bible. Like, straight off the top, just basically saying, God, this money is yours. It's not mine. It doesn't even come into my account. It goes straight out for God's purposes. Now, you might say, why would you do that? I mean, why don't you just kind of like evaluate it every month? Not necessarily that it's bad, but let's be honest. Are we really going to trust ourselves every month and go with our heart's desire every month? And sit back and kind of look at our stuff and say, oh, what should we do this month, Ryan? <laughs> I don't know. That CPS bill was tough. Are we really going to trust me? We're not. 
So we just set it up to say, this is done. This is God's money. Guess what? It ain't your money. And so this is God's guaranteed. Spontaneous giving is to say, but the rest of it is too. So I'm setting this aside, and if God opens a door, I better have my eyes open. And guess what? I haven't all the time. I haven't. I have failed countless times. But I want to. I want to live with my eyes wide open. And maybe it's not money. Maybe it's a meal. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's your house. Whatever specific gifts God has given you. There are going to be times where people in our church are really struggling financially. And we've got to come around them. We've got to support them. Just like when Paul, he asked people, like I said, who were enriched to be a blessing and others maybe who were struggling to receive a blessing. Some of us in this community need to actually voice that we need help. Man, that might be your big takeaway today, that you've got to actually let us help you because sometimes it is so hard to receive favor and grace. And we say, we give a gift and we say, I'll pay you back, man. That's not grace, homie, by the way. Grace is unmerited favor. So don't, say, don't ever say that again to me, Nathan, okay? So we've got to just receive freely. I hope you email us and you say, I need help this month. I can't make my rent. I don't have groceries. I, we would love to help you. And this is something we do personally. But let me tell you, we, we've never talked about this. So please hear my heart. I never want to say any of these things to talk about our church. It's not about us. It's about the kingdom of God. But we do have to set an example. We do have to set an example. If I'm asking you as people for us to consider God's word, we better be doing that corporately as a church. So as a church, we set aside 10% of all our internal giving just to give away automatically. This goes to things like nonprofits, missionaries, church plants, city causes. Organizations like Pay It Forward provides an Oxford house for people who are recovering addicts and alcoholics to get back on their feet. Organizations like Any Woman Can provides resources to women walking through pregnancy to give them opportunities and relationships to help them support them and keep their baby. The Good Hood that helps support the East Side, the Strong Foundation, which helps homeless families keep their families together and stay together. Uh, the SACPN, which helps plant churches in the city. Campus missionaries like Meg Craig, who serve on campus, missionaries in London and across the states. We set aside, apart from that, $1,200 a month that goes into a fund we call Radical Hospitality. And in our church, we look for opportunities to bless people. If you've ever received a care package or flowers or a gift card from Tina and she showed up at your door, that's our Radical Hospitality line. We seek to bless people in our church that God has entrusted to us. And we're going to keep being radical with our hospitality. We set aside $1,000 every month to help provide furniture and fridges and opportunities for next of kin taking in kids so they remain out of the foster care system. This past week, we donated two fridges to two families. A grandmother of five, somebody in our church bought a brand new fridge that was delivered to them yesterday. She just took in five kids who would have gone into the foster care system. One grandma needed a fridge. We donated another fridge that we delivered to another widow who's taking in her daughter who's pregnant and was living under a bridge. These are some opportunities we're trying to do. 3,000 a year goes into a line to help provide marriage counseling for couples in our church who can't afford it. And on and on, there are other opportunities that we need to take to be generous as a church. And I pray we can be that kind of church. And I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we have done everything we can do, but we're, we're trying to figure it out. What does it look like to keep our head up? 
keep our eyes on God's greater purposes in his people. And I promise you, I share none of that to boast about anything. And only all of that is possible because of you. It's only possible because of you. And many of you, you are the stories behind those things. You are the people doing those things. You are the radically hospitable people. There's so many of you and so many organic stories, spontaneous giving that are already exist in this room. And I'm saying, let's just, let's keep moving forward in that. Let's keep encouraging each other to keep our heads up. Let's keep encouraging each other. Don't turn insular, bro. I know what it's like. I know the grip on your heart. I know what it's like to fail. I know what it's like to live that way. And I'm telling you, I'm encouraging you, let's just keep running, bro. And if God chooses to pour out the favor of all the heavens on your life, I'll be the first one you can take to Foga de Chow. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So are you seeing life from God's perspective? Are you seeing God's purposes? Are you seeing God's people? I don't want to waste my life with my head down in the sand, focused only on me, myself, and I, and miss the better way of Jesus, following him, treasuring him, and living as a blessing to the world around me. Amen? Amen. I'm going to bring the band up, and I'm going to put some questions here on the screen. And if you want to reflect on these this week, I'd encourage you, just snap a photo of that. I kind of ran long with my message, to be honest, so we don't really have time to reflect and pray. No more prayer. We're out of time for prayer, okay? So take a photo of it. Pray on your car ride. Close in prayer in your car ride. Turn on K-Love. So, yeah, the band's going to lead us in a song, and um, Ash is going to get out of here. But I, I am going to close us in prayer. So if you would, join me in a word. Now, God, we give this time to you. We thank you, Lord, for your word. I ask you, Holy Spirit, to speak to each of us individually, however you want to move us. Um, all that we have is yours, Lord. I ask you to forgive me for all the times that I have become completely inward in my life and miss the people around me who have real needs, real problems, real pain, and God, I, I don't want to be a church that just builds bigger barns. There's nothing wrong with building. There's nothing wrong with blessing. But God, I just ask that you would continue to help us see your greater purposes with our life. God, I do. I, I ask that you bless these people. For those who have just been faithful or, or trying to open their hands for the first time to trust you with their resources, God, I ask you would show them in a powerful way. In fact, your scripture says, test me on this. God, I, I'm asking that you would show them you're trustworthy. You're faithful. And even if we open our hands, you can't outgive God. So I pray, Lord, that they would see that in a tangible way this week, this month, this year, whatever it is, God, that we would put it in your hands. That we would say, I'm, I'm not living another day with my head in the sand. I don't want to waste my life. I want to live my life for Jesus Christ and his glory and his purposes. And I pray, God, you would open our hearts for whatever that looks like, God. Don't let us go another day. Help us encourage each other. Help us keep pushing each other forward as a family. And we love you, Jesus. We give this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen.